Open up your Bibles with us to Mark chapter 7. We have come as far as Mark chapter 6, finishing chapter 6. Uh, Mark chapter 7 is where we're at this morning. We'll probably get from verse 1 down to verse 30. But to uh, understand where we are and what's going on in Mark, remember that Mark is writing a apologetic of sorts as he's accompanying Peter, we believe, in Rome. And Peter is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentile believers in Rome, if our history is accurate, with a view towards the Roman culture, which, you know, the Romans would ask this question, so you want me to believe in this man as a savior of the world. Why should I do that when his own people have rejected him? It's a very no-nonsense question that would arise out of Roman thinking. They would not be all that interested in Hebrew culture and the um, traditions there that Messiah would have to fulfill. There are Jews that would be interested in that, but the Romans aren't. The Romans want to know, if you want me to believe in you, you need to give me good reasons. I want to see if you can get the job done. And so Peter is giving us a very action-packed, event-by-event a declaration of Jesus as the Son of God. It's a very fast-paced, stripped-down gospel in Mark. Jesus comes on the scene in, in review. He demonstrates very quickly in the early chapters of Mark that he does have power over all creation, of all things seen and unseen, life and death, spirits, uh, unclean spirits, obey him with just uh, a word, which is very, very unusual. You know, it's, uh, they've never seen anything like that before somebody who has absolute authority over these issues, but also seeing that um, he is calling disciples to himself and giving them instructions of of expectations. You're going to do kingdom work? Then here's what you can expect. In chapter 4, we saw that out of those parables. And we've seen also the opposition, of course, arising that's real. If he's coming from all quarters, even his family, really, And especially religious leaders, hypocritical religious leaders, are in opposition to Jesus. Uh, The Romans want to see how he handles that. Who is opposed to him and why? And how does he handle that? Very important. But then also, as we've read, Mark, we ought to take note of some subtleties that are changing. Uh, He has done a lot of things very outward and open. And now, though, there are ways in which Jesus is now demonstrating his power only to his disciples. There are things that are happening that only his disciples get to see, those who are committed to him, those who are willing to venture out on troubled waters with him, get to see things that nobody else does. Some things of Jesus' power reserved for those who see him. But we pick it up in chapter 7, and we are getting a sense that he has obviously been rejected. They have uh, the official press release out of Jerusalem on Jesus, because he is very well known. He's got a huge following. The official press release from the religious leaders is that Jesus is doing his work and his powers by the authority of Satan. They've already seen that. They've already rejected him. That's why a lot of his teaching went to parable form, because of that declaration. So the religious leaders are rejecting him, those who are the, supposed to be the leading, most spiritual people coming out against Jesus. But played off right against that, we're going to see today, are those who are considered outcasts, outsiders, by those same religious leaders. Jesus is finding a very warm welcome amidst them. Gentiles 
And we're going to find somebody today who is twice outside, got everything going against them, at least as far as the culture of the day goes. Not only is this person receiving Jesus a Gentile, but she's a woman. Both of those very looked down upon. But we'll get to that. We pick it up in chapter 7. Um, the religious leaders are now opposing Jesus. It says, now, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him. We're, about a, we're probably a year and a half to two years into Jesus' uh, ministry, so you know where we are. About a year and a half, it says, they came to him from Jerusalem. These are the heavy hitters. These are not your run-of-the-mill scribes and Pharisees. This is a delegation or such from Jerusalem. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. They didn't come to Jesus to hear spiritual truth. They came to him to find fault, to find a way of discrediting him. And so the point that's being brought up here today has to do with these unwashed hands, and it has to be explained by Mark. This isn't something that the Romans would know or be familiar with, and so he needs to explain it. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Now, our minds, that doesn't, Seem like a bad idea, and it really isn't a bad idea, obviously, you know, wash your hands before you eat and stuff like that, but it was much more than that. They had come up with a legalistic understanding of, and we're not sure where they got it from Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you need to wash your hands before you eat. It doesn't show up in any of the law. We think they get it out of Leviticus 11 or Leviticus 15, talking about uncleanness, And uh, the idea goes something like this. In case you have touched something unclean, you ought to unknowingly, you know, become unclean. If you become unclean, you ought to take care of that somehow. So you should, you should wash your hands to get rid of that uncleanness. And that, you know, that's kind of makes sense. But again, they, they, they had taken that way beyond there. As, as they usually did, the interpretations went much, much farther than the scriptures ever did. And so, uh, at this time, you know, there were a couple of schools of, of thinking, a couple of schools of rabbinical teaching. There was a very conservative side and there was a very liberal side. They didn't agree on much, but they agreed on this. There was, a, there was 18 different decrees that covered how you had to wash your hands. It literally says where it says they wash their hands in a special way. The in a special way is literally with the fist. They had to wash their hands. With the, they had to bend their arms a specific way, pour water over their hands so the water would go down, and then turn it over and do it again and wash. And all these special things they had to do to satisfy these made-up ideas of keeping yourself Levitically clean. Along comes Jesus and his disciples, and they just seem to be ignoring that. They just pick up food without washing their hands, and they just break into their chimichanga or whatever they're eating. The Pharisees go, wait a minute. How come you're, you're stepping all over these traditions? That's not right. See, the idea is to the Pharisees, you weren't right with God if you weren't washing your hands. And so they're finding fault with that. 
that Jesus is going to come against that, is that's, just a, that's, that's, a, that's a real error to say that you're not right with God because you don't wash your hands. It might be a good idea to wash your hands, but it's got nothing to do with how God sees us. But that's the way they had spun it in their traditions. Then the Pharisees and, and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from us, or whatever benefit you might have received from, from us, is korban. And that they wouldn't, Romans wouldn't be unfamiliar with that language, that word. So explains that that is a gift to God, dedicated to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, so Jesus, again, encounters them, the traditionalists, the Hebrew thinking of the leaders. They're judging him based on traditions. The traditions have nothing to do with how God really feels and how God really thinks. But this tradition has been spun so that if you keep their tradition, you're okay with God. Look at verse 6. Here's the, the crux of the problem there that's summarized. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he uses this word over and over again, traditions. Again, the traditions that they're dealing with, again, the hand washing. Here's another one he brings up. It went something like this. Again, the scriptures commanded to honor your mother and father, and the way that worked out was when they got older and they couldn't go out and sustain themselves economically, you know, there was no Social Security at that time, none of that stuff, no retirement accounts. And they got to the point they couldn't sustain themselves in an agriculturally-based society just from age, then those who, were, who they raised, their healthy kids, ought to support them. It makes sense. Well, here's what would happen. Those, those kids would grow up, and in a moment of time, in a sincere act of devotion to the Lord, they might say to the Lord a very good thing. Lord, my whole life is yours. You can have everything I am and all that I will ever be, all that I will generate from my life. I dedicate to you. That's a wonderful thing that would be said and done. And they would do that formally in the temple as an act of genuine worship to the Lord. Excellent. But then, when they got older and they got to that place where they saw mom and dad in need, now they were under the obligation, fictitiously, that everything they had, they had given everything to the Lord so they couldn't then divert any of that to their parents to help them out. And that left them in a place were just exactly what Jesus is saying. You don't let them take care of their mom and their mother and their father. 
Now, you know, I, I, I kind of like math, and I know that's weird, but, um, you know, we, we kind of think in terms of math, and you get to the end of a math equation, and something contradicts the beginning, it ought to tell you you've gone wrong. You, you know, you get to the end, and 2 equals 1, you made a mistake somewhere. The same thing applies here. You got to the end of your interpretations, and you're doing something that God says not to do, or you're forbidden from doing something God says you should do, and you've gone astray somewhere. And, and they, they would not look at that. This people honors me with their lips is what they were doing outwardly. You could say something outwardly. You could say, we're honoring God with this, but the reality was their heart was far from me. And again, the word that comes up here over and over again is tradition. You know, there are some traps in tradition that that very much come up here that we need to look at. Jesus goes on, verse 14. He says, he called all the multitude to himself. He said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. Before that conversation was just between the scribes and Pharisees. Now he's getting everybody's attention. He's going to speak very clearly to everyone who's listening. He says... Hear me, everyone, and understand, there is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. Well, that's very different from what is being said here by the, by the uh, scribes and Pharisees. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile, defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, there's a great deal of spiritual truth loaded into that. And he signifies that by saying, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, verse 17, he says, When he entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. So he said to them, Are you thus without understanding? Okay, you know, I kind of like that right away. Um, You know, you ever been in that place where you get taught something out of the Bible and you don't understand it the first time and it has to... You know, you end up saying, could you go over that again? Because I sort of understood it, but just go over again, just between me and you, because I didn't understand anything. Um, Go over it again very slowly. You know, you ever have to be taught again by the Lord? I have. uh, You know, and you know what? That's apostolic qualities. So there you go. Um, Needs to be, you need to have this explained to him. And you know what? Jesus wants to explain it. Okay, you don't understand it. Let me explain it to you. Do you not perceive, and here's what, you, here's what needs to be perceived, understood, grasped, that whatever enters a man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not enter his heart but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. You eat it, it goes through your body, there you go. And thus purifying all foods, that might be a, a little interjection by Peter and Mark understanding what Jesus is just exactly saying there, uh, that in the Lord you are free to eat anything. He said, here's the crux of what he's saying, what comes out of a man that defiles a man? For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. 
Um, you know, uh, the idea here is that people are being loaded down with demands to keep traditions, and um, they don't know why and they don't understand them. But it's being given to them that if you don't keep those traditions, you're not right with God. And, um, you know, that's the trap with traditions. Um, traditions aren't bad in themselves, but here's what happens. Here's what happens to them. It can happen today. Someone has, an, has the idea that they need to get right with God for whatever reason, whatever circumstance is driven to them. This has arisen in their heart. I need to get back to God. So what do they do? Back then, they would go to the temple. They would encounter the Pharisees, the scribes, if, and they would be loaded down with traditions. You need to do these things. And the idea that would be um, handed in that transaction of how do I get right with God? Well, you keep these traditions is that and this ought to bother you a great deal. I can make myself acceptable to God by what I do. You got to have a problem with that because that's very different from what the scripture says. And, and that can happen today. Someone arises with the idea in their mind, I need to get right with God. They walk into a religious organization, a church, and they may encounter something that's very traditional. Okay, we need to be careful how we dice this up because we're not saying that traditional churches are wrong. We're not saying that. We're saying that it needs to be handled very carefully and there are traditional, there, there are traps in traditions. Because here's the question that arises out of that, all of this. Do you know why you're doing what you're doing religiously? Do you understand it? If not, well, then there's a problem because that's exactly what traditions might trap you in. You're doing something you don't know why. Um, let's think about it here. You know, there's, there's, um, there's different expressions in Christianity of a Sunday morning worship service and, and those things that, that might be called worship to God. Um, you know, Calvary Chapel, we're kind of low on the scale of traditions and liturgies. Um, our, our services are pretty similar from Sunday to Sunday. But, um, you know, my own experience is, is out of a very high liturgical church. You, many of you have come out of things like that, where every Sunday um, you say in the church service, would say and do just pretty much almost identically the same thing. You would uh, read prayers that are out of books written by somebody else, and you'd stand and kneel at the same time, praying the same things. And, um, uh, you know, um, that, that's not, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to look at that and say that's absolutely wrong to do. No, it's not. If it's done with, and coming out of real biblical truth and, an, and a, a living relationship with Jesus. You know, and again, my experience, uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in the Episcopalian Church. I don't know if you've heard of that. The Anglican Church, Church of England. Um, it's basically a lot like Roman Catholicism, but without the Pope and Mary. Um, you know, for, when, you, when you look across the landscape of churches, it's a lot of different denominations, 
the word denomination just means names. There's just different names and groups. Um, when you trace those back, you know, all of them have pretty good beginnings. The God did something beautiful and something new and fresh and alive in some person or some group of people. And then, uh, you know, no matter who you, who you talk about, the Lutherans, the uh, Methodists, the Presbyterians, um, Baptists, um, they all have really excellent beginnings um, where God did something new and beautiful in somebody's heart and that caught fire, uh, much like what happened in Calvary Chapel in the early 60s. Um, and, um, but, you know, those denominations are a lot older than Calvary Chapel. And they've had um, to deal with some of those traditions. And uh, again, you know, uh, for myself, uh, maybe like you, um, I went through all the motions growing up as a kid, doing all the things. I didn't know why. Um, I had no idea why I was doing those things. In fact, I, I did the whole acolyte thing. You know, the altar boy? We started probably in fourth or fifth grade, you know, you put your robe on and you carry the candle up the aisle with the procession and you learn very quickly to, to hold that candle out away from you. If you knee it, well, that thing's going to come back on you and that you can get wax in your hair and now you're walking up the aisle with your eyes waxed shut and, you know, you gotta, you got you to maintain game face. You can't go, ow, in the middle of the procession. Uh, my brothers and I, my stepbrothers and I, we all did that um, you know, it's embarrassing to make those mistakes. We were altar boys. We had to, we'd stand up here at the pan and the offerings would go across and they'd come up and you don't want to drop the pans. You know, the money goes everywhere. The pans make a terrible noise. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, right? Um, um, you know, the funniest thing I've heard out of that is um, arises out of our own uh, eldership of our church. You know, in, the, in that tradition, they want to treat. They wanted to treat the uh, communion service with a lot of respect, and and they interpreted the, the communion elements as being the body and blood of Jesus. We don't, but they did. And so, you know, to keep any of those crumbs from ever being wasted or falling on the floor, because if it's the body of Christ, you don't want that to happen. They would hold a little metal pan under somebody when they were taking communion. Well, the altar boys would learn very quickly that if you Wearing the robe, wearing the right shoes, you rub your shoes back and forth on the carpet. Now you're statically charged. And that little metal pan is a great little conductor. And while your friend is taking communion, you just move it forward and you could shock them. Pow! And um, I think that is just hilarious. But um, look, the idea is you go to church. Why are you doing what you're doing? Do you understand it? The trap of traditions, somebody goes to church wanting to find God, and they, they, we want to be very careful, and every church ought to be very careful, that we don't communicate that if you follow this recipe of actions, you will make yourself right with God. That's not what the Bible says. That's the trap of traditions. Um, because the answer is, you know what the answer is, um, well, you know, traditions, let me say this about traditions. Traditions usually had a marvelous origin, if you think about it. Someone is repeating someone else's, an action that arose out of someone else's 
maybe very real, very living relationship with God. But it was theirs. And now I'm doing it. Um, Here, look. Someone comes to church and they encounter traditions. Um, You know, I don't know who that is, but maybe someone comes to church today and with that in their heart. And um, they walk in. um, They need to know that they can be made right with God very quickly and very easily. Um, that, That God isn't into performance and doing things. In fact, the Bible is very clear. You know that you can't do anything to make yourself right with God. To try to fix your own problem by doing things, the Bible calls those works, works of the law. And it says very plainly that a man is not justified by the works of the law. That's out of Galatians. It also says, by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So the idea that you, you do a tradition and you make yourself right with God, it's an illusion. That's very wrong. It's what was the scribes and Pharisees were falling into, communicating to people, if you do that, you're right with God. No. And that's what Jesus is coming against. God isn't calling us to religious observances. He's calling us to a living relationship with him where we trust him uh, for the provision for that sin solution. Uh, He has provided that solution in the death and resurrection of his son. That's what churches need to communicate. That's when we need to be very sure that we are communicating every Sunday to anybody who might be listening in any form. Um, He's not calling us to, to repeat traditions. He's calling us to real worship, to faith, um, to believe it, believe what he's said, to repent of sin and begin obeying him. Um, you know, Romans five, Romans 4, 5 says, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Romans goes on and says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 1 John 5 says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and his, this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. That's got nothing to do with traditions. Look, traditions are okay. They can, they can tend to deceive people if you're not careful how they handle them. If I do these religious things... And I'm doing him out of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm trusting him for salvation, for complete salvation, that all of my sin has been forgiven on the cross, and that payment has been verified by his resurrection. If I'm repeating others' traditions based on that knowledge, then they're okay. You know, a low liturgical church like Calvary Chapel ministers to some people. Ministers to you, you're here. Praise God. Uh, maybe a liturgically traditional church ministers to another type of person. If it's being done out of a living relationship with Jesus Christ, we need to praise God for that and thank the Lord that he's ministering to him that way. So um, we can do traditional religious observances, but, but we've got to make sure that we're communicating where they came from and what the reality of them behind them is. 
Here's the other problem with traditions that Jesus touches on really here. Not only do they not bring us into a right relationship with God, but they can express how we've gotten into a right relationship with God. But those kinds of traditions don't change our inner life. They don't do anything to touch what's really going on inwardly. See, that was the problem with the scribes and Pharisees, right? They did all those things, but inwardly, well, Jesus has a real problem with them. Elsewhere, he says, um, you, in talking to the Pharisees, says you would strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Unless you miss that, you know, that to be clean, you had to observe some dietetic things. You couldn't eat unclean animals, and you couldn't eat anything with blood. And so the Pharisees and scribes, again, took that to the extreme, and they would go to the effort of straining, running all their beverages through a strainer, so just in case a little fly or bug got into that, they wouldn't swallow it. And the bug would be unclean, maybe, but you're eating also an animal with the blood in it, and so you're unclean. And then they didn't want that. But Jesus says, look, you're leaving your inner life unredeemed, and the wickedness that you're allowing in your heart, you might as well go ahead and swallow a camel whole. Get another Levitically unclean animal, all of its blood. That's a, you know, take some Pepto-Bismol with that or something. That's, you know, you're going to get indigestion. The idea would be very shocking to them. And, and this isn't anything new. This goes way back in Scripture. God has always been calling us to be honest about our hearts and about our inner life. It goes back even to the time of Solomon and earlier. Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 4. He said, above all else, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. That sounds a lot like what Jesus is saying right here. And uh, so traditions, traditions don't touch that inner life. Um, you know, he's not calling us to ignore our inner life. He's calling us to open his word and honestly look at our heart through the lens of scripture. And if, if we are involved in sin, we should put it away. I mean, ultimately, the problem is they were doing things and they didn't know why and their lives weren't changing. That was the problem. They weren't receiving him in faith to be right with God to receive the righteousness they need. They thought they could earn it themselves. But then they also left their inner life to go any which way they wanted. And, uh, um, you know, he gives quite a, quite a list here. He says that these things come out of our hearts and defile people. You know, here's it's quite a list here. Um, out of the heart of man, verse 21 Proceed evil thoughts. That's, uh, you know, just thinking evil. Thinking things that are bad and rotten. Um, Jeremiah, in his time, condemned the people, and he used an illustration. He said, your hearts are harbors, safe harbors for evil thoughts. And, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I spent a lot of time at a harbor. Maybe it makes a lot of sense to me, an illustration. You just kind of put up a wall to protect. You don't. You just let those thoughts kind of have their way and quietly in your own mind. Uh, but there's more than that. Adulteries, that's, 
you're married, but you're engaged in sexual relationships with someone who is not your spouse. Uh, fornications, you're not married, you're engaged, with sex, you're engaged in sexual relationships. Murders, thefts, that's straightforward, stealing. Uh, you know, um, stealing has lots of different forms. You can, um, we'll talk about it in a, uh, later. Uh, covetousness, covetousness is very simply not being, not being satisfied with what God has given you, but finding, uh, desiring what God has not given you. And that's a very broad term. You can covet anything, anything that God hasn't given you um, that you would strongly desire and think, I have to have that. Could be houses, jobs, positions, um, spouses, whatever. Supposed to be content with what the Lord has given us. Wickedness—that just means anything that's rotten and bad. Uh, deceit, um, very deceptive. You know, uh, we can be very deceptive. Lewdness—that um, really is um, shameless, unrestrained lust. You can park all your pornography right there, all your online pornography, all your sex chatting, all your phone calls, um, any printed material, movies, all park it right there. Um, an evil eye, uh, you know, and you'd kind of say that and expect a muhahaha. Uh, that's kind of the evil thoughts taken to an extreme. You just can't see anything other than interpreting it as bad, rotten. You see everything. Evilly, you don't under, mis, you don't interpret it in any of the other fashion. Blasphemy is um, to ascribe to God something unbefitting of Him. Um, pride, and if we haven't covered it all, the last two very broad: pride and foolishness. Um, so again, the problem with the scribes and Pharisees was that. Um, they didn't know why they were doing what they were doing. That's what they were communicating. And they weren't changing. We don't want to be like that. We don't want to be, be going to church and remaining unchanged. That would be the trap of traditions. There's something wrong with a church where somebody can walk in in an unbelieving, sinful state and stay there for a long time without conviction Something very wrong with that configuration. There needs to be brought to people's hearts and minds the reality that sin is real and needs to be put off. We're not going to be like that. So we're going to confront these lists, look at them, and ask the question, are you sinning? Are you, can, can one of these be laid a charge to you right now? We need to put that off. We need to stop doing that. But it's more than that, because he's calling us not only outwardly change that behavior, because he's saying these things are coming out of our hearts. Maybe you have enough common sense to not actually do some of these things. You realize the consequences are bad. I don't want the consequences. But he's calling us to more than just refrain from the behavior, although he is calling us to that. We need to repent from those things. But we need to go beyond that. If we're going to be people who honestly face the word of God and go forward with him in sincerity, we need to look at our hearts and realize that's coming out of my heart. Does that bother 
you at all, that these things would even come out of your heart. It ought to. Um, you know, the, the scriptures talk about later this way. It says, not only do you do these wicked things, but you approve of those who do them. It's not enough to just not do them. We have to find them abhorrent enough that we wouldn't even be entertained by them. And we can vote with our remote, right? Um, to use a little alliteration there. What are we watching? What are we finding entertaining? This list, uh, a lot of TV is right away. <laughs> Am I really going to be entertained with that? I've got to check my heart. Again, change the desire, the outflow of my heart. God has graciously granted us his Holy Spirit. But what Jesus has done on the cross, he has given us his Holy Spirit. We can have the power to walk in sincerity and reality with him and have him change our lives. We're going to put these behaviors off. But then we're going to go farther than that. We're going to recognize these things are coming out of my heart and it ought not to be. Scripture says it this way. Jesus said it this way. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Again, we don't want to be people who are going through religious traditions, remaining unaffected. So let's ask the question, when was the last time you were grieved over the sin in your heart? When's the last time you took that grief before the Lord and asked him to change the desires of your heart? Again, we're not going to walk in empty traditions. We want the power of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and minds. That's what Jesus is calling us to here. That, you know, you want to, you want to put a term there, brokenness. My heart needs to be changed. I don't have the power to, but here's the good news, right? In Philippians, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus when we come to him in prayer. That's what he's calling us to. So we don't want to be people of empty tradition, mindlessly going through religious observances. We're not doing that. It's okay to repeat things that have flown out of, have grown out of other people's relationship with the Lord. It's a beautiful thing that expresses our own heart. Praise the Lord. And we can thank the Lord for other churches that minister to people with traditions. We're not going to paint too broadly with a broad brush and say, you're in traditions, you're wrong. No. If they're worshiping and loving and serving God with, with the reality of Jesus paying for sin on the cross and rising from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit, their lives being changed, then praise the Lord. Okay. But there's more than that. I think this story is put right against the next story. Uh, for good reasons, for just that. Because we're going to see somebody come to him and express faith in him. And she doesn't have an ounce of the, of the tradi- trappings of tradition. It says, from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is north of the Galilee, um, north of Capernaum, maybe 45 miles or so. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean and what we would today call Lebanon. Beautiful climate, wonderful area, beach cities. I'd go there too. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know 
you know, he wants to just get away for a few a few days, maybe just to get away from the crowds, the pressures. You know, as a, is a as God, he is without physical limits, but he's also a man, and he's tired probably. Lots of demands, lots of people coming and going. But he could not be hidden. Um, again, I've said this before, but what a beautiful thing to have Jesus in your house. Uh, you know, I don't know who this person is in the scripture, but you know what? They're probably a Gentile. You know, he was, he was more than happy to come to their house and find something that was pleasing to him. For him at that time, it was to rest. They opened their house to him, invited him in. Have you ever invited Jesus into your house? I mean, you know you've invited him into your life, right? You know, I want my, I want my family to know and hear from me that I'm inviting him into my house. I think that goes a long ways towards um, uh, blessing the house. But he could not be hidden. You know, uh, someone as well known as Jesus couldn't couldn't keep it couldn't keep it as a secret. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. This woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Well, we got a lot of background there. That information, a woman, we don't know who she is. She doesn't live there at the house. Uh, she has, what a tragic thing in her life. She has a daughter with an unclean spirit. Now, lest we downplay that, go to verse 30. It says, when she had come home, of course, the happy ending is she's released from that. But look at the term that's used. She found the demon out of her daughter. She had a demon. What a terrifying thing. What a heartbreaking uh, thing for a mother to have to go through. The daughter that's demon-possessed. Uh, how did this happen? Again, no, there's no idea of how it got there. But up in that uh, pagan area, lots of uh, deities are worshipped. It might have been happened at some temple, you know, god, pag, pagan deity worship. She became demon-possessed, something like that. How tragic. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the woman is probably exhausted herself, looking for help from these false gods. But here's what happens. It says, this woman, uh, all this says that she came and fell um, at his feet. Where does it say she heard about him? Well, it doesn't say it. Yeah, it does. It she, she had an unclean spirit. She heard about him. Verse 25. That's all she did. She heard. <laughs> what, an, what an expression of faith this woman has. All she does is heard. She's heard the stories. Hey, there's a guy down in Israel, and he's got power over the demonic realms. And, you know, she's, she, maybe she's tried everything else, and nothing has worked. And she said, this is guy, this guy, I know. He can do this for me. I know it, and suddenly she hears he's in the area. He's down the street, around the corner, uh, and she she came and fell at his feet. Um, she hears about Jesus. She hears about power over the spirits, and she comes to the right conclusion. Jesus is the answer. So she's Syrophoenician. She's a Phoenician who's living in Syria, 
she kept asking him to cast the demon out. And in other words, Jesus didn't answer her the first time she came. She probably didn't get access inside the house. She probably stood outside calling, Jesus, help me. In fact, Matthew 15 tells us the same account that uh, she stood outside and used some very Hebrew terms. Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Now, those are accurate terms. He is the son of David, but she has no relationship. She's not a Hebrew. I think she's plying that traditional trap. If I do this, I'll get an answer. You know what? I think Jesus wants us to go beyond recipes for getting him to respond to us. If I say these words, then I'll get something out of God. That, that reduces him to a bit of a vending machine, right? becomes sort of an incantation. If I say this prayer this way, well, God has to answer. No, he doesn't. What he wants is for us to come in faith to him. And her faith is there. She's falling into the trap, maybe, of the traditions. And he's going to lead her beyond that. And she's got the faith to go there. Uh, Look, here's something else here. She came and fell at his feet. She was a bit desperate, wasn't she? I, I can understand that. Any parent with this kind of tragedy in their child's life, yeah, go to Jesus with that. Um, you know, sometimes the Lord does allow tragedies in our lives so that we will come to him. Uh, desperation is a very effective tool in the hands of the Lord to lead us to him. It's maybe your stories, you know, a lot of stories in this fellowship about uh, tragedies and desperation in our life brought us to Jesus. Um, it's very common to be driven to Jesus by tragic circumstances. It's far better, when you think about it, that the Lord would allow that so that we would end up with eternal life and maybe some discomfort for a short period of time than to go through completely unbumped by tragedy or tradition or, or, or circumstances and then come out the end without eternal life. So the Lord allows desperate times to drive us to him. But she's got also perseverance. Uh, her faith is already expressing itself in perseverance. She gets no answer from him. She kept asking him. It wasn't like she showed up and said, excuse me, is Jesus here? Would you pass this prayer request on to him? And then she waited five minutes. Oh, well, nothing's happening. I'm going home. It wasn't it. It was Jesus or nothing. And she's not taking no for an answer. She knows that Jesus is the answer. She's got the faith to know that. And she's got the faith to stay there and you know what? I think the Lord allows her to stay there in that, that position of not getting an answer so that she can get around the trappings of tradition a bit. She's trying to call on the Jewish Messiah with German Jewish terminology, and she's not a Jew. So he says to her, finally, let the children be first filled, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. You know, the Lord um, 
The Lord leads us to a place. Sometimes we need to persevere in prayer. Because he wants us to overcome our misgivings in faith. She didn't give up. Perseverance is building godly character in her. It's building it in us. She didn't get the answer she expected. I wouldn't expect this answer. What this, what's this about children and dogs and bread? You know, again, her answer reveals that she understands something about Jesus. She responds to this by saying, yes, Lord. What is Jesus saying that she's agreeing to? Jesus is saying and stating to her a truth. I'm a Jewish Messiah. I was sent to the Jews. It's not appropriate, really. I'm not obligated to you right now in any way. You know, I don't owe you anything. And you know what? That is the truth to agree to, a, a, a truth that we need to understand in, our, in, our, in coming to the Lord. The Lord doesn't owe us anything. And that's okay. We can agree to that. Yes, Lord. I agree to that, Lord. She's saying, I understand you're the Jewish Messiah. I understand you don't owe me anything. Because the terminology of children's bread at the table is an analogy for the Jewish people. And the little dogs are an analogy for the Gentiles kind of on the peripheral things. Uh, the way it would work in a, in a dining situation you know, in that, in, that, in that situation, if you had dogs in the house, you didn't have a bowl of food that you poured every morning for them. The dogs had to find their own food. And one of the ways it was convenient for them to find food is, well, like your dog, my dog, kind of they sit around the dinner table and wait for scraps. And Jesus is saying, this is intended, the blessings are right now are intended for the Jewish people. But she responds with knowledge, and says this, but even the little dogs under the table eat from children's crumbs. Uh, she's, what's she saying there? Um, she's saying, you know, like, I'm nobody. You don't owe me anything. And I'm going to ask anyway, though, because I still believe that you can help. And I believe after all of those valid scriptural positions, Still, your heart is to want to help me. And her faith there is met by his, her, his response. Um, that's, that faith is expressed to God. That's, the faith expressed that way to God is something he will respond to. To come with no ground to claim anything from him. To only appeal to his heart for help. He says to her, for this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Notice, he didn't say, let me go to your house. I'll touch her. Anything like that. Look, this woman's faith is already strong enough to have his word be enough. Exemplary faith. Um his word was enough. And so she went home. She found the demon got out and her daughter lying on the bed. And it was a cause of rejoicing. Obviously, it strengthened her faith. It uh, caused, obviously, more thanksgiving to the Lord. Um, but I bet, you know, she went home already with those things in hand. 
my daughter's clean, my daughter's healed, thank you, Lord. And when she got there and she saw it, it only, it only increased those things. Look, um, I think these two stories are put here right against each other for very good reason. He calls us to come by faith and not by traditions, right? To believe what has been said and written about him. You know, I don't, I don't know who is encountering this today. I don't know everybody here. I don't know how this is, message is going out. It's probably going to encounter somebody in very similar situations. Maybe desperate times have fallen upon you. Something has arisen in your heart. Realize God is the answer. We want to meet you today with the truth and not with the distractions and the traps of traditions. You need to be saved. You need to come to Jesus in faith. He has the power to solve your problems. Just like this woman, her problems were with sin and the devil. And she was helpless in their face. And against those things, she had no power. But she had heard that Jesus did have the power. And maybe if that's you this morning, look, Jesus does have the power to solve your sin problem and take care of the devil himself. But you need to come to him by faith. You need to respond to what you maybe have already known and heard all these years, that Jesus did die on the cross for your sin, and that he did rise from the dead. The issue is you need to be in repentance and accept him. Accept him as Lord and Savior. So if that's you this morning, we'd like to pray with you after the service. We'd like to see to it that you understand what you're doing, and that you go and can leave with a living relationship. After the service, if that's you, you come forward and pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. Why don't we stand and we'll finish and we'll pray as the worship team comes. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we do thank you that you have provided and you've provided in your own death on the cross and in your resurrection. Help us to know, Lord, and to follow you with understanding. Give us opportunities, Lord, to serve you and to speak of you this week. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. Amen.